0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading for today is from Mark 1, verses 35-38, through 38, and chapter 2, verses 1-12. through 12. And rising very early in the morning, While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, he was reported, This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
1: Thank you, Charlene. Good morning, friends. Happy holiday weekend. Uh, If you're here with us, great to see your faces. I've missed faces the last few weeks as we've uh, done the online-only thing again Uh, And uh, those of you who are traveling or exercising extra caution at home, we welcome you. Glad you've joined our community this morning as well. Uh, We are in the gospel according to Mark, and we're calling this series Jesus. Uh, Mark moves really fast. If you're reading the gospel of Mark, uh, you know, sort of in a way that tracks with where we're going in this sermon series as a church... We're only in chapter two. We actually just finished chapter one and started chapter two today, but already Jesus has resisted and defeated Satan. He's cast demons out of tortured and tormented people. He's healed many people with diseases uh, in their bodies, and his ministry has drawn uh, large, almost uncontainable crowds. Now, if this were us this were happening around us, what would we ask ourselves as, as uh, modern Americans? Maybe we'd ask, you know, how can, we, how can we monetize this? How can we turn all this influence into a book deal or, or a movie, maybe? Uh, or maybe our leader should consider running for office. Maybe we should start a Twitter campaign or a hashtag movement to increase the influence here. How do we leverage this momentum, we might ask ourselves? And the human heart's always been the same. While the disciples didn't have Twitter, they didn't have the media outlets that we do, they did have similar hearts and impulses. And so they're seeing the crowds, and they're saying to themselves, we really need... Jesus really needs to capture all of this momentum and and, and the moment that has been afforded to us. But Jesus is off on his own praying for hours and hours and hours. All night long, we're told, as the crowds are waiting to hear whatever he has to say or do next. And the disciples, without saying it, are thinking to themselves Jesus, you're doing the least practical thing you could do in a situation like this. There are crowds to address. There is influence to to advance. But in fact, according to Jesus, praying for hours and hours and hours and hours is the most practical thing to do in such circumstances. Martin Luther, some centuries later, said, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours of it in prayer. Why did Jesus spend so much time praying before he walked out to be with the crowds again? It's because he had some preaching to do. We're told in verse 38 that he says to his disciples, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And then verse two, many gathered And when the crowds gathered, he was preaching the word to them. And so so before the miracle of mending takes place, which is remarkable, of a, a paralytic's body, Jesus takes time to work an even greater miracle. And that is to mend an immobilized heart. So what I want to talk about today is Jesus and specifically about his words that heal deeply, his deeds that authenticate those words, and then an authority that he has to go where no one else can go. And so let's start with words that heal deeply. So the, the, crowd, the crowds are teeming around Jesus, and, and they're filled with expectation, expectation. Because they've heard rumors that he is a man who makes people well. If somebody is emotionally tormented, all he has to do is speak, and they're at peace again. If somebody is physically tormented, all he has to do is touch them, and they're healed. And so to get Jesus' attention, there are actually four friends of this man who is paralyzed from the neck down and what they do to make sure that their friend gets Jesus' attention is they go on top of the house where Jesus is speaking and they, 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 they break a hole, they bust the roof open and lower their friend on his, on his bed down in front of Jesus. Now N.T. Wright has an interesting insight here. He observes that Jesus at this time has moved Uh, from his former hometown, (coughs) Nazareth, to this city (coughs) called Capernaum. And what N.T. Wright says is, in all likelihood, because people are coming to Jesus, in all likelihood, this is actually his house. We don't know this for sure, but let's just run with it. Notice that there is no scolding at all for the vandalism of either his house or somebody else's house. No scolding at all. And this points to the compassion that Jesus has for people who want to lay down their hurts, lay down their hearts, and come to him as they are, as we sung a few minutes ago. Beautiful song. You can wreck my house, you can wreck my things, if your motive is to come to me so that I can unwreck your life. First things first, the crown of creation comes in front of every other aspect of creation. So there's no scolding even for the vandalism. Instead, what he does is he speaks two significant words, son and forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. And if, you're, if you've been paralyzed from the neck down, you, you might look at Jesus with a, with a bit of curiosity. My friends went through all this effort to get me in front of you, it's clear what differentiates me from everybody else is, is my immobilized condition. And what you say to me is that my sins are forgiven? Um, thanks. But how about the presenting issue? It's important to recognize that Jesus is not offering forgiveness for roof damage. What he's offering forgiveness for is this. The man wants too little from Jesus. I forgive you for wanting too little from me. He's asking for a crumb when there's a feast available. It's not unlike Mephibosheth, the man who was crippled in both feet, who is presented to the new King David, and all Mephibosheth wants from King David is survival. All he wants is survival. Please don't kill me because Mephibosheth was a descendant of the evil king Saul, who was David's predecessor, and typically kings would kill off the family of the predecessor. And so this man, Mephibosheth, who's crippled in both feet, immobilized himself. All he wants is survival. Please spare my life. And and David says, in effect, you're not asking me for enough. You're asking way too little because not only am I going to spare your life, I'm going to make you a son. I'm going to adopt you. And there's always going to be a seat for you at the king's table. You asked for too little. C.S. Lewis said, "We're, we're far too easily satisfied flirting around with drink and sex and ambition when God offers us something so much greater in himself. You want to walk again? Is that all? Is there anything else? Is there anything more that you want from me? The paralytic might be asking, what more could there be than to be able to walk? Now, on on the surface, it it might sound like or look like Jesus is being a little bit snarky, maybe even a little bit cruel with this man's paralysis. Jesus does come across as insensitive sometimes. But it's important what he's trying to get through to this man and to us. Your vision for the good life is no vision at all. If all you want is for your circumstances to be fixed, if all you want is for this pandemic to go away, if all you want is more money or more power or more pleasure, then your vision for the good life is way too small. You need a healed heart more than you need a healed body. And in fact, maybe according to Jesus, your heart is never going to be healed unless I keep you immobilized in other ways until you recognize what you need the most. You know, Donald Miller, yes, the blue like jazz guy, um, who also, he lives in Nashville. He's a friend of mine uh, and graciously offered his uh, what he calls story brand training to our director's staff recently here at Christ Prez. And his training helps organizations and leaders clarify their message uh, for greater impact and so on. But, but, but one of the things that Don did during the training was he, he spent a lot of time talking about a man named Victor Frankel. Uh, who is a Holocaust, a Jewish Holocaust survivor, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning? And Frankel is, is a miracle story because he emerged, even as a, as a former prisoner at Auschwitz and, and other concentration camps, as a hopeful, optimistic, non cynical man. And you look at Frankel. And you read through his his reflection and man's search for meaning, and, and here's what he says: To find meaning, every person has to have a story that has a, a, a meaningful cause attached to it. Has to have a community around them that will help them uh, take attention off of themselves and, and move it toward the com- their attention toward the community and toward the greater cause. And the third component of meaning is that you have to have a redemptive perspective on suffering. You've got to be able to see purpose occurring through suffering and setbacks. What what Frankel's theory was, and I think he's right on, and I think this resonates with what Jesus is trying to get across here, is this, that, that, that we all have a deep thirst and there are all kinds of theories as far as what our deepest thirst is and, and, and what we go after in order to make our lives meaningful. And he says, uh, Freud says it's will to pleasure. Pleasure is what many people think is going to make their lives more meaningful. But Nietzsche would say, no, it's power, a will to power. And we see a lot of this around the American Washington conversation these days and all, and all days. A will to power. I can't be happy, I can't feel like my life has meaning unless I have power, unless my tribe has power. But Frankl says both the will to pleasure and the will to power are distractions from what every heart really needs, and that's to have a will to meaning. And a will to meaning includes, remember, having a redemptive perspective on, even, on, on, on suffering. If Jesus immediately gives this man an able body without tending to his heart, it could free him to run to the distractions. Now that my body works, I can pursue pleasure and power again and and, and totally bypass the meaning and purpose and redemptive value of suffering conversation. And so to the paralytic, to the man who's immobilized from his neck down, Jesus says, son. That's the first word out of Jesus' mouth, son. That's a term of endearment. That's a term of belonging. That's a term that communicates affection and relationship. Son, your sins are forgiven. If you were here or if you were dialed in online a few weeks ago, you might remember when one of our elders, Anderson Spickard, who is also a Vanderbilt physician, uh, internal medicine professional, trains residents, and so on. Uh, and he's been on the front lines of, of treating the pandemic at Vanderbilt. And you may remember this. This is what this is what publishers call a sticky phrase. It, it's, it's a phrase that, that maybe you highlight in a book or in an essay that you don't want to lose, that you want to remember this, that you want to hold on to it, because you want that phrase to impact you. This was a sticky phrase for me from... Dr. Spickard's prayer. As he's praying with focus on the pandemic, he says, Lord, give us relief, but not without the revival of our hearts. And it seems that this might be what the paralytic is after, relief without the revival of his heart. Where we look for Jesus' hands and what Jesus' hands can do Without having any interest in Jesus' face, we want him to fix things, but we don't want him to change us. And Jesus says, No, I I actually might need to leave you immobilized for a few months longer in order to, to work like Aslan did with Eustace. When Eustace turned into a dragon, remember Aslan the lion brings out his claws. And he digs through those layers of thick dragon skin to get all the way to Eustace's heart, to pierce his heart. And Eustace, says is the most painful thing I've ever experienced. And yet, because the claw went all the way through the dragon skin and the layers of it all the way to my heart, I became a boy again. Jesus is trying to humanize this man by going all the way to his heart To bring him relief, yes, but not without the revival of his heart. Jesus redefines the good life for us here. And the good life has a whole lot less to do with the state of our circumstances and everything to do with the state of our hearts. If all Jesus does is heal the man's body, then he puts the man at risk of deflecting his heart and attention away from meaning and purpose toward the pursuit of power and pleasure. Tennessee Williams, the famous playwright, wrote this essay that you can Google called The Catastrophe of Success. And and in that masterful essay, he talks about how he started out as a playwright, as a poor, starving a uh, uh, writer living in a roach-infested closet in New York City trying to write a play that, that could both put food on the table and hopefully also make him famous. So money and fame, power and pleasure as the driving motivators, and from those conditions of poverty, he wrote a masterful play called The Glass Menagerie, and everything changed for him. In, in the writing of that play, it became a Broadway, uh, a Broadway hit, he got rich all of a sudden, he had servants. he had a huge home he could you know he had people waiting on him, hand and foot. he could eat whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. He had all the money and all the fame that he 'd dreamed of, but he realized that he 'd lost something in the process he could no longer create it 's like a lot of our songwriters here at Christ Prez say to me that it 's my low-grade, chronic low-grade anxiety that fuels my creativity. It's, it's my internal angst and misery that fuels my ability to create beautiful things. Sounds a little bit like what Paul said in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope, which does not disappoint so what Tennessee Williams did to get his creativity back is he, 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 he recreated the conditions of scarcity and poverty for himself. He actually moved himself to a slum in Mexico and took every luxury out of his life to try as best as he could to recreate those former conditions. And from that place, he created his second famous play called Streetcar Named Desire. We can learn something from the tortured artists. Enneagram fours you out there? You know Johnny Erickson Tata who has been immobilized since her teenage years. She's a friend of many of us at Christ Prez. She's in her 60s now. Been paralyzed from the neck down ever since her teenage years. And from that place, Johnny famously said, sometimes God allows what he hates. Paralysis, pandemics that seem like they'll never end, another strain of COVID that's 10 times more contagious. Sometimes God will allow what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Bring us relief, but not without the revival of our hearts. So words that heal deeply, but then deeds that authenticate the words. Jesus offers two of his many miracles in this episode. The first is the way that he reads people's minds and motives. Now, if you're against Jesus, this is, this is scary. You know, Perceiving his critics' spirit, it says... As they questioned him within themselves, Jesus said, why do you question these things in your hearts? How did he know? Well, here's how he knew. Little did they know that their accusation of him was so much more true than they thought. Only God can forgive sins. Well, put two and two together, guys. I am God. I am him. I am Before Abraham was, I am. Yes, only God can forgive sins, and here I am to do so. This is bad news for the critics. He can read your heart. It's good news for the paralytic, though. He's carried by four men, and when Jesus saw their faith, not the paralytic's faith, but his friend's faith, he attended to the man. Maybe these four friends are acting a lot like Aaron and Hur did for Moses when he was defeated, when he was out of energy, and when he was flat out of faith and he was flat out of prayer. Aaron and Hur lifted his two hands for him toward heaven. And maybe this is what's happening with this man. Maybe he's feeling defeated. Maybe he has no more prayers except, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's all he's got left. And here again, we see the tenderness of Jesus. He knows that our motives are mixed. He knows that this man is not coming to him for his face, but for his hands, not for relationship, but for a fix. And yet, even from that place, Tim Keller puts puts it into perfect words, I think, when he writes this. Jesus Christ is so gracious, so eager is he to pardon us, He even responds to fragmentary, imperfect expressions of dependence and need in our hearts that aren't even expressed. Jesus Christ is aggressive with his grace. He comes at you and pours his grace into you if you even give him the slightest opening. In fact, he actually creates his own openings. This man was not trying to believe. This man was not trying to find forgiveness. This man was not trying to find grace. And yet Jesus comes after him. This triggers the memory of of the, the famous parable in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son. Remember what happens the son has made a wreck of his own life and he says, the only place I have to go if I want to eat and survive is back home to my father's house. And so I'll tuck my tail under my rear end and I'll go home and I'll prepare a speech. And his speech was nothing more than a request like Mephibosheth for survival. Make me as one of your slaves, father. Father. And the father has already been outside waiting for this day to come. And he sees his son at a distance before any apologies, before any restitution is offered. He just gushes his son. He finds the opening and gushes his son with love. Yeah, let's not talk... Let's not talk about survival. Let's talk about how I want to put my ring on you, how I want to cover you with my royal robe, how I want to put sandals on your feet, how I want to slaughter the fatted calf and invite the whole community in for a party in your honor to celebrate you. Why? Because I want more for you than relief. I want the revival of your heart. And giving you mere relief and survival is not going to revive your heart. And so I'm going to love gush all over you. And Jesus leaves us guessing in terms of what the prodigal's ultimate response was. But he reads minds and he reads motives and he looks for openings, but he also heals the man. It's as if to say, okay, critics, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, resurrection language, pick up your bed, and this is how Jesus sometimes will cause us to carry our wounds with us for the rest of our lives to remind us of what he's rescued us from. Maybe that's why we have scars after surgery. Maybe why that's why God invented scars and calluses so we will carry remnants of our broken past with us to remember not only how he healed our bodies and our circumstances, but more importantly than that, our hearts. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. What the best surgeons in the world have never been able to do with their hands, Jesus does with words. Just words. Words that put the galaxies into existence. Words that looked at a hurricane and said, peace be still, and it was immediately still. We'll preach on that one in a few weeks are the same, they're coming from the same wordsmith, word giver, word-centered savior who came primarily to preach, not to fix. The same power is in his words. Son, you're forgiven. Rise. Walk. More immovable, though, then body paralysis is heart paralysis. Ephesians 2 talks about how every human being comes into the world dead in transgressions and sins, dead men walking, dead women walking. But God made you alive. Looks for the opening by creating the opening and makes you alive to his love. So this past week I I posted or reposted a, a picture of a mug, a coffee mug on Instagram that had a caption that I thought was funny and also not funny. The caption is, I can do all things through a verse that is taken out of context, that's a play off of Philippians 4 where Paul says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And what the mug caption was getting at is that, that that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength is not about winning an athletic competition because both sides are praying the same verse. It's not about, you know, you getting that big break in your career. It's not about your your children never suffering. It's not about any of those things. The, the one thing that that prayer is about is about being able to have contentment in every circumstance. Paul writes those words from prison, incidentally. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I've learned the secret of contentment, he says. The source of true power and pleasure is not new circumstances, but contentment in all circumstances. Not relief without touching our hearts without the claws going through the dragon skin all the way to the heart to make us boys and girls again not without that but with it and that's where we come lastly to the authority where no one else can go to his critics Jesus says which is easier to say to the paralytic your sins are forgiven or to say rise and take up your bed and walk now anyone can say these things but 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 who can do them not even the most skilled surgeon can cure paralysis. But miraculously, many victims of injustice and violence and injury have been able, by the power of God, to forgive. Corey ten Boom, a Holocaust survivor, forgiving in the name of Christ. You know, Emmanuel AME Church members in Charleston, after the violent, senseless shooting, forgiving the shooter in the name of Christ. Martin Luther King Jr., who we celebrate and commemorate this weekend and tomorrow... Who said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Forgiveness. But for Jesus, cure paralysis? Easy as pie. Rise, walk, go home, take up your mat. Easy as pie. But to forgive sins, hard as hell. Despised and rejected by men, by his wounds we are healed, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was laid on him. Praying through, through sweat blood, bloody sweat at Gethsemane, Father, if this cup can pass for me, please let it, let it do so, yet not as I will, but as you will. Praying from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he go through with it? For the joy set before him, and that was, of course, the joy of having the one thing that he had not yet secured, and that's you and me. For us to rise, Jesus had to become pinned down, immobilized from the neck down, pressed not against a bed of feathers or cotton, but a plank of nails and splinters. Not with four friends by his side, but all alone. Which is easier? It's the most important question you could ever ask. Now to transition into the Lord's Supper, what I'd like to do So I'd like to read uh, some verses from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four about the week that we're about to enter, where we're going to be tempted to spend maybe five minutes a day in here and five hours a day on cable news and scrolling through the internet looking for some hope from Washington, which is not the center of the kingdom of God. It's nowhere close to being the nexus of the kingdom of God, and yet we want Washington to assure us that we can either get or keep the pleasure that we think that we need, or that we can either get or keep the power that we think that we truly need. Instead, remember these words? These are the words that said rise and walk. Same source. You don't just want relief, trust me you're asking for way too little. You want the revival of your heart that enables you to have contentment in any circumstance. That's what you want. Whether you realize it, whether you admit it or not, that's what you want. Because that's how you're created. That's what you're made to want. And so here's what Ephesians, 2 sa- or Ephesians 4 says about a Christian posture in weeks like the one we're about to enter. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is Paul writing as a Jew to Gentiles. This is Paul writing to a blended community of ideologically conservative Jews and ideologically progressive Gentiles. And he's saying, you want meaning instead of the trinkets of temporary power and temporary pleasure? You want meaning? Find your oneness and find your oneness in Christ. I was going to write out a prayer, on the basis of this and then an even better prayer than what I could write shows up in my inbox from Scotty Smith who's been a friend and mentor to me for many years And so I'm going to share that prayer with you before we talk about our only hope and our only comfort body and soul in life and in death let's pray together What does rising and taking up our mat and walking look like? I think it looks something like this prayer. Lord Jesus, over the next several months, this passage from Ephesians should be on the front of our refrigerators, posted on our most visited mirror, and tattooed afresh on our hearts. Today is called the Lord's Day for Christians who worship you on Sunday, though every day belongs to you, Lord Jesus. Tomorrow is what we call MLK Day, a day for remembering the work of Martin Luther King, Jr., who sought to expose and peacefully overcome racism. Wednesday, Americans will transition from one presidency to another. and Oh, how desperate we are in our nation for the power, sanity, and beauty of the gospel. We have never known a week more needful of the gospel realities contained in Ephesians 4. So, Lord Jesus, though we are exceedingly diverse as a body of Christ, you have made us gloriously one in yourself. One day, all who know you will be as lovely and as loving as you are, Jesus. We will love each other all the time with the same love, passion, and delight you have for us. What would revival look like in 2021? It would look like us in the American Church becoming pace-setters in repentance, humility, and gentleness. We share one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one Father. May our shared oneness topple our idols, tribalism, and excuses. We pray in your tender and triumphant name. Amen. Will you stand with me and we'll affirm our faith. The first question and answer of Heidelberg Catechism number one. Heidelberg Catechism descended from the same nation as Freud, Nietzsche, and Viktor Frankl. Let's go with Frankl on this one, except with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior who heals both body and soul. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this bread and this cup, which represent the body that was torn apart and the blood that was shed in order to put us back together, body and soul. Lord, whatever our paralysis might be, whether it's the paralysis of fear, the paralysis of greed, the paralysis of resentment, the, the paralysis of despair, the paralysis of raging anger, the paralysis of panic, the, pal- the paralysis of the idolatry of Washington, D.C., the paralysis fill in the blank. Teach us once again afresh that you're, with your words spoken to us and over us, For you, it's as easy as pie to heal these things in us. Break out your claws, if you must, Lion of Judah, to penetrate our dragon skin and pierce our hearts to make us boys and girls again, to make us children again, by forgiving us our sins so that we might become your sons and your daughters. What could be better than this? Father, take this bread and this cup, feed our bodies, but even more, relieve us, Lord, but not without the reviving of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.